This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly. Olivia Yallop joins us this week to discuss her new book, Break the Internet. Here's Carl Miller, Research Director in Social Media at Demos, with more. Today we're talking about that omnipresent, yet to certain generations at least, fairly opaque part of generating cultural capital online, influencer culture. Olivier Yallop is a strategist, a creative and trend analyzer whose new book, Break the Internet, has done just that, receiving rave reviews for its analysis for how the influencer economy works. With Olivia visiting a VIP influencer party with a million follower policy and even influencer boot camp along the way. She joins us now to tell us more about it. Very warm welcome, Olivia, to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So, uh, Olivia, when did you kind of begin to feel the kind of early tremors of of the influencer economy? When did you when did you start to kind of see it in your peripheral vision? I actually have a personal connection to the development of the influencer economy, which means that I've been keeping an eye on it in a non-professional capacity for many years. Um, Like many of my kind of millennial generation, I came of age on the internet as the internet was maturing and developing around us. So I was actually an early participant in kind of proto-influential spaces on Tumblr back in the kind of uh, late 2000s and began to be involved in spaces where people were starting to build up personal brands and to experiment with the idea of having a kind of online identity and a following and cultivating an aesthetic around yourself. And from there, that interest really began to become professional as I went into advertising as a career path and started to see this kind of digital evolution and digital revolution that was taking place in kind of opposition to the mainstream world of traditional advertising and traditional media. And so that's when I began to track professionally the development of these spaces and the ways in which they were kind of causing the atrophy of the traditional media landscape. So you, you kind of set up, I guess, one of the kind of primal distinctions, which I, I, I suppose we're going to explore quite a lot, this kind of, would you say it's an antagonism between whatever influencer economy exists now and and mainstream media and mainstream journalism, mainstream writers and so on. It is often painted as an antagonistic relationship. You traditionally see mainstream media as a monolith and digital media as this kind of underdog and upstart. But the way that uh, the two worked together, particularly in the kind of early 2010s when the influencer economy was beginning to formalize and emerge as a kind of cultural force in, in its own, is that actually the relationship was a lot more integrated and you would kind of see a lot of cross fertilization between digital influencers, bloggers, vloggers, as we called them at the time, and mainstream media. So, for example, if you look at one of the earliest pioneering waves of influence in a professional context, that's really the rise of fashion bloggers uh, or lifestyle bloggers. And they hugely relied on 
on traditional media, publishing lists of you know great great blogs to follow or featuring them in style spreads in the Sunday Times, uh, street style spreads. So actually, the relationship at the beginning is a lot more kind of entangled than you may think, and often still it is still pitched as a kind of adversarial relationship. But media is an interconnected ecosystem, and there's a lot of blend and blur and bleed between the two. As research for the book, I went to a recording of The X Factor. It was season, I think, season nine back in 2019. And it was the first uh, iteration of The X Factor, a kind of traditional, massive mainstream media behemoth that was attempting to integrate digital influence into its uh, traditional TV offering. So along with kind of hopeful contestants from reality TV and from kind of broadcast media, they also had TikTok stars and Instagrammers come along to try and participate in a sing-off. So it's not the case that it is necessarily a versus situation. However, um, working in advertising at the time, when you're fighting over kind of budget, that definitely was an adversarial relationship. So I began my career at a mainstream advertising agency, one of the old dogs, the big names in industry, one of the first advertising agencies actually to be uh, formalized. And whilst I was there, there was very much a sense that we were giving ground to this new wave of digital media companies, of independent creators. We were seeing our budgets kind of atrophy in in the face of this new media revolution. And so often actually it's pitched as a kind of adversarial relationship. And that still continues culturally, I'd say, in the relationship, the kind of attitudinal relationship between creators and the mainstream media. So there is a tendency amongst the influencer community or the creator community to regard mainstream media or traditional media, as they call it, in a kind of distrustful light. They are naturally cautious around journalism. They consider the mainstream media to be a kind of institution that has ignored them or that has deliberately kind of propagated a negative view about what they do for a living. And you do, you definitely do see a kind of reluctance amongst uh, mainstream media publications to fully platform or to, to fully investigate digital cultures. But increasingly, that's that's beginning to kind of self-correct, I think. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the uh, semantic rebranding of the influencer industry as this kind of ancillary of the marketing and advertising industry into this new creator economy concept, which is a much broader vision and a much more widely applicable business case. Well, let's dwell for a second, Olivia, on that semantic concept. So I'm sure there are people listening to this that either won't really understand what the word influencer means or may even shudder a little when hearing it. What really marks an influencer out from its kind of sister concepts, you know, of just celebrity or social media user or commentator? So influencer is, uh, I argue in my book, and a digital evolution of the traditional conception of celebrity. Actually, the Pope, uh, who is at Pontifex on Twitter, tweeted a couple of years ago that he considered the Virgin Mary to be the original influencer, which caused, as you can imagine, a large stir amongst both the Twitter communities and the uh, the Catholic community. But you can see a kind of progression and an evolution of the techniques and the concept of kind of high status individuals developing a following, transposing that onto a new new media architecture and a new media landscape. So really some of the techniques and some of the characteristics remain the same from more traditional conceptions of celebrity and some things have radically differed. So one of the key things that is often said about influencers is that they are ungatekept form of celebrity. So traditional celebrities such as Hollywood actors and actresses, politicians, uh, maybe sports people, all are the product of some kind of institution, whether that's a Hollywood or you know the political system 
or you know, big sports federations or uh, sporting bodies, there is always some kind of institution that has in many ways uh, enabled that person's career and, and also potentially manipulated that person's career. So to what extent are the actors that we see on our screens today the product of the system that they are being put forward by? And the argument goes that influencers are the first uh, generation of celebrity to be almost directly self-elected, self-selected stars with whom we have a very kind of tangible connection because uh, thanks to social media, supposedly the moat has been removed and uh, we have a much more kind of personal connection and a much more personal role in promoting this generation of celebrity. There are many other things that mark our influences from a kind of technical perspective. They invert a lot of our expectations about how traditional celebrities should behave. So with celebrity, there is necessarily some kind of distance between the celebrity and the audience. Uh, influencers collapse that boundary. They become famous through inviting you into the intimate details of their everyday lives. They kind of share more information than you'd ever kind of have access to about a celebrity. And they really invert the idea of of celebrity. We traditionally see celebrities as professionals. They are maybe uh, famous for being great at acting, great at sport, etc. With influencers, there often isn't a category or a, a talent that is necessarily being exploited, that they are famous just for being themselves. Um, that's often a criticism that's leveled at them, but this idea of kind of calibrated amateurism as a professor, Crystal Aberdeen, who is a, an influencer scholar, um, puts it, it's a kind of practice and aesthetic in which actors in an attention economy, the product that they are producing is fame itself. They are crafting this idea of authenticity and kind of cultivating this aesthetic of being an amateur. And that is what makes them uh, famous. So they, they, they sit in this kind of interestingly liminal space between amateur and professional, aspirational and relatable, authentic and performed, voluntary and monetary labor, every man and celebrity. They really sit in this kind of quite uh, gray space that really confuses our idea of, of how a celebrity should behave. Um, and that's why I think they're so interesting is that influencers are inherently a slippery concept. They occupy these really liminal roles and really liminal spaces. Starting with the origin of your typical influencers. So you, you said they were kind of self-directed. So is it as, they, as, as one emerges, I suppose, from their many non-famous counterparts surrounding them like kind of how old would your typical influencer be like do they kind of decide very early on this is going to be a kind of deliberate career choice what do they begin to do so when an influencer begins to embark on this journey kind of what's the kind of first step i guess in, in building their followerships that's a really interesting question because i would say in the past uh, five years approaches to becoming an influencer have changed dramatically we have this idea of an influencer as someone who is a bit of an online hobbyist and just so happens to end up becoming wildly famous. Those are really the headlines that you see. Uh, you know, a mum who just starts posting a, a few uh, pieces of content about uh, her children and her daily schedule online, and then that kind of snowballs and, and organically picks up traction. And then suddenly, you know, she has hundreds of hundreds of millions of followers and has become a millionaire and is, is running a hugely successful brand. That, in many ways, is a slightly outdated concept as the influencer industry as a whole has professionalized as the years have gone on, so have its entry points. So nowadays there are things like influencer boot camps, one of which I attended as part of research for my book, of people who are a whole generation of people who are actually looking at this as a really, really serious career path. This idea of it being um, a hobby or a pastime that just uh, starts to pick up speed is, is really quite outdated and I think doesn't mesh particularly well with the uh, industrialization of social media as we've seen over the past five years. So typically someone who is starting out uh, to be an influencer in this 
day and age, they will be more strategic than they used to be. They will be usually kind of highly fluent in the language of the semantics of influencing in the kind of strategies of marketing and self-branding, something that maybe the original OG YouTube stars of the kind of early 2010s, the kind of the first wave of really serious big influencers, you know, your Zoellas, your uh, your Tanya Burrs, maybe weren't when they started out. Nowadays, you know, a, a decade later, um, you're really starting from from a position of much more uh, technical fluency. And you may be attending things like an influencer boot camp. I went to a camp run by a company called Firetech, who are a UK education uh, company. They run kind of summer camps for various things. Uh, this was a camp aimed at seven to 12 year olds. So very, very young, wanting to become professional YouTubers. And so that was in a week, a week's immersive course, learning everything from uh, the strategies of self-branding. There's going to be a lot of people listening to this that are going to find what you just said extremely unsettling. Yeah. The, the idea that there's a, a course uh, industrializing the, the teaching of self-branding to seven to 12 year olds. What was your experience actually going to it? Was it, was it, was it less disturbing than that sounds like? Yeah, it's interesting. When, when I told people I was going to attend an influencer boot camp for children, you can imagine eyebrows were raised, uh, a lot of concerns were voiced around the concept of an influencer training camp, especially for children of that age. And there are other training camps that exist, of course, for you know people of all ages, a couple of uh, really successful ones run by fashion bloggers aimed at adults. But my experience going in, I, I thought, I, I went in prepared to be kind of horrified by this feeling of intentionally commodifying childhood or, you know, a feeling of, of exploitation of, of children as, as kind of laborers. And I went in with, with that as a preconception. And actually what I found when I attended was that in many cases, the students were more knowledgeable about the techniques of influencing, about the influencer landscape than the instructor. So it wasn't a case of, of the course corrupting this uh, pure vision of childhood, but actually a, a, a series of children who kind of inherently understood themselves as marketable objects within a performance-driven system from, you know, from, from day one. And the other thing I would say about this particular Again, course Again, I'm is not that, sure that's actually, that, that doesn't sound that comforting in a way though, does it? The idea that just no. because they're <laughs> extremely knowledgeable about the idea that they are they are commodities from the age of seven. I mean... Yes, yeah, sorry. I, and I don't mean to say that as a kind of get out of jail free card. I, I raised these issues that I was uh, mentioning with the uh, course leader. And he was saying that part of the aims of the Firetech camp was actually to train a generation of digital citizens in digital citizenship, in online safety, in a whole range of things that are missed out of a traditional schooling curriculum, but are so, so vital to understand. And he kind of likened it to a technological wave that it's coming and it's happening. And so the best thing for us to do is to train our children how to sensitively move through an increasingly commercialized online landscape and to uh, understand understand uh, how to behave online responsibly and how to build a sense of kind of civic duty to other people online. So there was a, there was a strong emphasis on you, online safety in the course. Did you, did you find that convincing, that kind of... I found it convincing. I, I found the, um, the, the teaching on the course convincing. There was a lot of fantastic lessons being told and a lot of uh, really great rigorous attention to online safety and what you're sharing and how you're interacting with other people online, which I think is, is much needed. I think 
what I would say with influencers about the influencer camp, which actually echoes my opinion about influencers as a whole, is that I think we tend to focus on the individualized nature of actors within the system rather than the system as a whole. So the, the tendency is always to focus on the influencer as the kind of figure of ridicule or the influencer training camp as a kind of sinister signifier of, of late stage capitalism or whatever. Um, when actually my approach to both the camp and the influencer industry as a whole is to look at it and say, okay, what has what are the conditions that have given rise to this particular phenomenon? Rather than focusing on individual instances of influencers behaving X, Y, and Z, why don't we look at the forces that have caused the influencer industry as a whole to emerge and, and the conditions that are influencing the influencer system? And same with the course. I think it's more interesting to consider why a course to train children to become influencers exists and what that says about the nature of digital, the digital landscape in 2021 than any kind of, I, I prefer to focus on that as a, as a kind of intellectual question than considering the experience of, of the course itself. But I, t I totally take on and, and agree your point that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very contentious issue, training children to become influencers online. And um, it plays into conversations around child labor laws and uh, the kind of legal safeguards and protections around children working in the influencer industry, not only as child influencers, but also as the offspring of parenting influencers or you know people who are featuring on family YouTube channels, for example. And the regulation around child influencers in that way is, is really lacking. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk just in a moment, Olivia, about, as you say, you know, the, the wider societal kind of impacts that the influence economy has had. But, but one more question before we move on to that about influencers themselves. For those lucky few, I suppose, emerging from that course and into a world of being a professional influencer, what is their life really like? Because I'm, kind of, I'm kind of torn between half believing that their lives are amazing, you know, that they make all this money simply through selling a lifestyle that they haven't perhaps would live anyway. And then half thinking that the very idea of turning one's life into a brand actually is the creation of a strange new kind of prison. You know, one where you have to have like a really, really clear idea of where you sit in the marketplace and to, to, to kind of remove any kind of information and complexity of being a human being, which doesn't fit in with that brand. And there must be lots of things like that too. What's your sense of like what it is like to actually live as an influencer? You've hit on a really interesting tension, which I think embodies the influence industry as a whole. There is this influencer mythos, this philosophy of um, getting paid to do what you love, of having freedom, flexibility, self-empowerment, and that idea that you are you know making loads and loads of money and having loads and loads of fun. That is really key to the influencer industry. That mythos is really key to the influencer industry as a whole. And often the most highly visible and uh, widely publicized examples of influencer culture are exactly those. So you you see the kind of Logan and Jake Pauls or the James Charles or the um, you know, individual people who appear to be having a really, really nice time and getting paid for it. Actually, the reality is hugely different. And the reality for a vast uh, number of influencers who don't meet that top 1% category is, is hugely different as well. So the kind of labor of being an influencer is intentionally abstracted and obfuscated. And as a result, influencing is kind of seen as a very delegitimized form of work. As you rightly picked up on, there are a hugely demanding number of things that you have to do in order to be an influencer. You are in a kind of 24-7 job that never stops. There are no boundaries between your life and your work. You are required to kind of self-brand every aspect of your existence. Over time, those demands increase in kind of pressure and intensity. There are many influencers who complain of kind of burning out or feeling that they have no kind of off switch. There are, uh, if, if you become an influencer, you are essentially saying every moment of my life is a potential moment for capturing content. And thus, every aspect of my life is a potentially commoditized moment or a potentially profit generating activity, that kind of psychological reframing of uh, your entire life in terms of the conditions of, I guess, the, the conditions of work is is hugely psychologically burdensome, um, as well as being uh, quite kind of technically demanding and difficult. So for example, uh, the kind of algorithmic conditions under which influencers are working demand huge amounts of content to be produced at ever increasing paces. And the ability to kind of keep up with that is very, very demanding. The increasingly granular levels of access that audiences expect to have to influencers' lives uh, is also very, very demanding. And the conditions of that they are laboring under in terms of the relationship between platforms and people who make their livings off of platforms uh, is very, very unequal. So that is another kind of um, element of stress. Working 
according to the whims of an ever-changing algorithm and a kind of black boxed series of decisions about your online profile and, and your online business that can often result in kind of situations of huge stress with, with accidental shadow banning or removal of revenue or simply kind of updates to uh, YouTube or Instagram's terms of service that have huge, huge ramifications for your income, which might be easy to sniff at, you know, get out the tiny violins who's crying for the Instagrammers who can't you know, make money off flat tummy T posts anymore. But actually the majority of influencers aren't that top 1% who have 10 millions of followers and they're pulling in millions of dollars every year. The majority of influencers are more of a kind of working class of influencer or kind of like a, a blue collar influencer, you would say, who are working away at kind of moderately successful channels, moderately successful profiles that are bringing in a small or moderate amount of money that is often supplement to other sources of income. So this image of an influencer as, as just that super, super successful top 1%, I think is something else that needs to be dismantled along with our conceptions of influencers as only kind of lifestyle influencers who work in kind of fashion or beauty or whatever. There's, you know, the reality is a lot more broad and diverse than that. Well, let's move on to that next, Olivia. So, so uh, enough of the influence themselves and now more about what they're doing to all of us. Question one, does the rise of this, I guess for many people, including me, kind of strange new social machinery of the influencers, does it change the kinds of information which people are more likely to encounter in their online lives? By which I mean, and let, let me try and explain, you know, there's a kind of conception, I suppose, that a lot of influencers alight on brands to do with, say, positivity, because they know that's a kind of safe topic with broad appeal that isn't particularly controversial. Maybe they consider that being a, a, a way of growing their audience as big as possible. Is that true? Or, you know, do, will, will influencers talk about, you know, all the topics that society has always spoken about? And there are influencers that will deal with difficult, divisive, political and social disputes and others that will deal with, you know, equally difficult and divisive social issues. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to attempt to answer this and then you tell me if I've, if I've gone wildly off track. So our traditional conception of an influencer is someone who creates content under series of clearly defined lifestyle categories, fashion, beauty, family, fitness, food, travel, confined to those, those what I would call lifestyle categories. But actually, increasingly, as the influencer industry has evolved and developed, what we're seeing is a broadening of the parameters of influence. And so now there are influencers for almost every topic or almost every genre or category that you can think of. There are farm influencers, there are legal influencers, there are LinkedIn influencers who kind of um, create content about the corporate context. There are influencers who talk about, you know, there are activist influencers. There are influencers who talk about anti-capitalism. I looked for my book at a, a series of influencers known as BreadTubers. BreadTube, it's a YouTube community of left-leaning content creators who create content that, that discusses kind of anti-capitalist themes more broadly. So there are influencers now that, that really relate to almost every category you could think of. And so I would argue that this idea that influencers only talk about kind of brand safe topics or things that feel kind of commercially pliable for them. So positive themes. Yeah, um, or is like no health, the case. I guess, or yeah. lifestyle was in, look at me, I'm on my private jet. I'm, I'm just like kind of sharing yeah. a bunch of, you know, I, I guess like broad, broad conceptions about what the influence world is like. Yes, exactly. So now that that kind of no longer holds true, I think TikTok was a real watershed moment for the development of the influence economy in this way. Prior to TikTok, our main platforms were Instagram, you know, known as the kind of polished shop front, the glossy catalog that you're flicking through, YouTube, the source of boisterous clickbait and apology vlogs and this kind of candid style of, of kind of really intimate narrative storytelling. With TikTok, suddenly 
uh, the parameters for what could be considered influential have expanded massively. You know, some of the top influences from last year were a young girl who was growing 50,000 tadpoles in her backyard in Derry. There was a man in Australia who was uh, trying to quit his fizzy drink habit and just uploaded a video every day saying, today I've had a fizzy drink or today I've not had a fizzy drink. You know, uh, there was a guy in the US who worked in a hardware store who gained millions of followers for videos of him mixing paint at work and just asking his followers to guess what color the paint would be before he he took off the lid to reveal um, what color paint it was. So this idea of the kind of the mundane suddenly entering the realm of influence, um, I think really, really exploded with TikTok. And so now it's it's not correct to say that influencers, uh, this idea of influencers as only aspirational, I think is really no longer the case. That's hugely changed with TikTok and also just with, with a, a huge, vast number of people now more online than ever following the pandemic. Would you say, Olivia, that um, the influence economy continues to challenge a kind of concentrations of power? Because it was very interesting. We began this conversation talking about, you know, this perhaps lessening antagonism between the influence economy and mainstream press. A lot of the examples you gave, you know, have been ones which sound like kind of wonderful liberations in a way. You know, the way the internet has allowed these kind of otherwise quite hidden, obscure kind of personalities to kind of enjoy the attention that they really deserve because they're amazing. And without the internet, they, they never would have found their way perhaps onto mainstream media. But but with the kind of entry of, of this, you know, boot camps and perhaps hype houses and this kind of like, you know, management and kind of professionalization. It sounds like what you're saying is that is that actually just a kind of parallel kind of mainstream media is being rebuilt. Perhaps one that's actually in a way like, you know, got all the kind of concentrations of, of money and power that the old mainstream media has, but, but is even more hidden in a way, less visible and less obvious. This is a bit of an Instagram versus reality moment. Um, and I'm glad you've picked up on this because, yeah, although the, this idea of the, the creator economy is is backed by this quite compelling promise that, you know, anyone can become an influencer. All you need is a mobile phone and the right mindset. It's kind of a digital revolution that is um, destroying gatekeepers and broadening the diversity of, of traditional media spaces and being a kind of a, a democratizing revolution. And along with that is assumptions that, you know, the, the, the very concept of a platform inherently implies a sense of equality. It's this flat organizational structure it offers you know fair opportunity to everyone for digital class mobility and anyone could could theoretically become an influencer and be successful you're correct in that what it really does or the conclusion that i've drawn is that it merely replicates and consolidates the existing power system that we already have in place in more traditional media formats so although individual influencers may uh, achieve success and achieve traction um, and it is the case that for many kind of marginalized communities social media has been a great space to create communities and to generate visibility that maybe they wouldn't have had previously. Um, If you look at the system as a whole, it's actually not particularly meritocratic in terms of who gets to become a top influencer. There's something that a social media academic called Professor Brooke Aaron Duffy has called aspirational labor, which is the concept of um, working not for immediate reward, but in hopes of a future reward. And she's using that to describe the process of becoming an influencer or the labor of an influencer. And that really benefits those with the kind of social safety net and the ability to work for free or, or at least in, in hopes of a future reward. So when you look at the top of the influencer landscape, it is uh, very much the case that the top creators are still overwhelmingly white. They're still overwhelmingly uh, male. And so you can see this kind of replication of, of um, hierarchical structures from traditional media. You also have to ask on a more broader level, who ultimately is benefiting from influencers' rise? The ultimate influencer is the kind of algorithm and off the backs of the labor of 
a thousand influencers is, of course, the platforms themselves who are gaining vast amounts of capital, both cultural and financial, from this wave of supposed emancipation of, of individual creators. So you also have to look at the way I think that influencing, the ease with which influencing has been co-opted by some quite conservative or reactionary forces. So for example, if you look at the rise of people like Donald Trump, who I consider to be an influencer, if not the most successful influencer of our time, he used the techniques and the traditions and, and the rhetoric and the ways of, of influencing to really just end up consolidating conservatism uh, in, a, in, in a much more effective way than uh, his opponents and, and arguably than ever before. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily true to say that the demotic is the democratic. Uh, there's a bit of a difference there just because it's kind of a mass massification of media or massification of celebrity doesn't necessarily mean that it's also inherently emancipatory. Let's also um, talk about the commercialising impetus of all of this, Olivia. So, you know, I, I'm sorry to kind of lay out a series of concerns around all of this with you, because like, I really do agree that there, there seems to be kind of lots to celebrate in this whole world as well. But how do you respond to the kind of, I, I guess, the, the charge that influences kind of a collapsing a personal almost like friendship based relationship with people albeit with millions with kind of advertising you know essentially what's being created here are these strange new relationships where it's largely like they they talk to and i think they're brilliant at it like they're millions of followers um like they're their friends but then you know they to slip in the product placement and the paid for kind of content kind of into that relationship you know, is that kind of problematic or is that just like how things are going to get bought and sold in the future? Yes. Yeah, so I'm not an influencer apologist. I am not here to defend uh, the evolution of influence. I think um, my approach more generally is to consider influencing as a profession and the influencer industry as a kind of test case uh, as a really interesting Petri dish for broader issues around power, labor, economics, etc., identity, and to see them as a really interesting lens for which to look at contemporary society and also uh, a little bit of a kind of um, flag of what's to come because time and time again, it's been proven that innovations that occur within the influencer industry quite quickly become spun out to a broader consumer base. So if you're raising concerns, it's very, very important that they are addressed, you know, that, that they are looked at and addressed. I completely agree with you because what's happening with influencers now is likely to, to form a kind of long tail of, of impact onto consumer behavior and consumer culture more broadly. So I agree with you that it is yeah, deeply concerning that influencers represent the kind of intertwining of personal relationships and market forces. They're essentially the, the total kind of blending of the worker and the individual together. They represent the kind of perfect neoliberal figure in that way. When you're looking at things like hype houses, for example, a hype house is a physical location in which content creators will come together and live and work under the same roof. That's an almost perfect metaphor. I mean, you couldn't make it up for the kind of intrusion of market principles into the domestic space. It's interesting with hype houses as well is that the, the, the way that they operate is often members of a hype house will be kind of paying for their the roof over their heads or you know paying rent effectively uh, through the proceeds of their brand deals. So that then combines this idea of having a roof over your head with being able to kind of commodify and brand yourself. So um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it's necessarily a thing to particularly be celebrated as an evolution of marketing. It just more broadly, I think, represents a more concentrated form of what we've seen over the past decade, which is the blurring of brands and culture. We've seen brands increasingly try to act as humans. You now go on Twitter and you see brands 
brands like Sunny Delight or Pepsi or whatever, and they're all they're all tweeting as you know they're tweeting in all lowercase uh, in slang, and they're really trying to appear as if they are people. And then the kind of flip side of that is that you have influencers who are kind of becoming individuals who are becoming brands. So it's it's really just a symptom of that larger macro trend towards the bleed between brands and culture. I guess to to answer your question because I've very much spoken around it, I I don't think I would necessarily defend it. I think it's interesting because it's a tangible product of a much, much larger shift that is taking place. Final question. What would you say are the the major forces reshaping influencer economic activity now, which are going to point us to, to where this is all heading? What should we be looking at in terms of current trajectories, like fragmentation of audiences? Will there be more regulation? You know, is this just going to keep populating and disrupting more and more industry verticals and areas of life? Like, what does the influencer of the future and the economy supporting that influence to look like? This is a great question. And there's actually, I think, two separate answers to this. There's a kind of tactics answer, and then there's a more kind of conceptual answer. So in terms of kind of tactics, you're absolutely right that what we're seeing is the kind of influencerification of the individual. We're seeing that a large, large amount of people who wouldn't previously have been considered part of the content economy are now being drawn into it, whether by being forced online during the pandemic or losing their jobs or just starting to pick up kind of TikToking as, as a sort of thing they're doing in their spare time, or actually because their employers are increasingly starting to expect them to participate in the content economy. The biggest influencer of Q2 2021 isn't uh, a makeup guru or you know a, a lifestyle vlogger. It's the employees of MS Romford who have gone viral on TikTok for lip syncing to the Backstreet Boys and making various funny, silly music videos. And that I think is a really interesting demonstration of this idea of influencing previously an occupation confined to kind of professional influencers working in lifestyle genres to now a much broader kind of base of retail employees. And I have spoken to someone from MS, uh, an employee who has claimed to me that as a result of the success of the individual MS Romford store, um, there is now an expectation that every MS store will have its retail employees creating TikTok content in addition to doing their everyday jobs. And this is something that I've been following for a little while. The US, which is probably about six months ahead of us in terms of general influencer trends have had official employee influencer programs for a lot longer. Um, Walmart has something called a spotlight program. It's an it's a kind of experimental program at the moment that is aiming to uh, train up its retail employees as TikTokers. So they are going to be creating TikTok content around the clock. Increasingly, you'll see on LinkedIn, often people will share job postings that are for, you know, completely offline jobs, but actually one of the asks is to kind of content create. So it seems as if the shadow of the creation economy or the content economy is, is becoming bigger and bigger, and that more and more people are going to be expected to participate in the influencer economy, whether or not they consider themselves influencers full-time or influencers part-time. And then the second, uh, so it's the, the kind of first trend that's happening is that um, more and more people are becoming influencers. Um, but from a more kind of conceptual level, you were asking about shifts to the to influencer market more broadly. And I'd just like to talk about the evolution of influencers kind of to date and the economic forces that have really driven that. So my grand unified theory of influence is that the influencer economy has developed in three stages. The first stage was advertising. So back in uh, my days, starting out in the industry, um, influencers were very much viewed as ancillary to social media, which was viewed as ancillary to digital marketing, which was viewed as ancillary to the advertising industry as a whole. And in this phase of influencing, influencers were really viewed as human billboards who you would be booking to do a sponsored post about your product. So maybe I'd be holding you know, my, my jar of vitamins and saying, these gummy bear hair things are great. Uh, they do this, hashtag ad. 
um, that was kind of first stage influencing and is often the way I think that people still view influencers as effectively just doing sponsored content for brands. However, we shifted on from that into phase two, which is the kind of entrepreneurship of influence. Influencers began to realize that they actually didn't need to uh, spawn on behalf of brands, but actually they were the brand themselves. And they suddenly start to view themselves as kind of entrepreneurs or CEOs of the self. They build up big teams around them. They often launch brands of their own that rival the brands that they were originally doing sponsored content on behalf of. Um, a really good example of this is a, a beauty influencer called Huda Katan, who uh, originally was doing sponsored beauty content and then quickly realized that actually she was, she was the brand, millions and millions of followers launched Huda Beauty, which went from a startup to a billion dollar company in about five years. She's on the cover of Forbes. She's an entrepreneur and they are starting to expand the, their kind of personal brand empire and hedging out those brands that they needed to do. And often, in many cases, stopping doing advertising at all. Your, your question was, what do we need to look at for the next maybe five years or next 10 years? And I'd like to talk about financialization, the financialization of influence, because I think this represents the third stage of influencer evolution. Um, and that's really a development of the market forces that are holding up the influencer economy. For a while, influencers have been frustrated with reliance on advertising-based uh, revenue models. So they've started to open up brands of their own or started to do kind of direct subscription via Patreon or OnlyFans or Substack or any of those services that really allow you to directly monetize your personal social media feeds. But increasingly, they are experimenting with crypto, social tokens, blockchain technologies, and kind of alternatives to financialization that are enable them to actually turn their conceptual influence into an actual financialized product that they are then able to kind of cash in on. So we've seen some really, really interesting experiments here. Companies like Rally, it's a startup that have developed something called CreatorCoin, which is enabling creators to effectively develop their own cryptocurrency that they could share and create their own mini economy around themselves with their audience. Um, we've seen creators experiment with NFTs. We've seen experiments like BitClout, which is an attempt to create a social media stock market. So you could buy and sell shares in influencers as they kind of rise and fall in their online reputation rise and fall. So what we, I think we're seeing is this next phase of influencing is really powered by financialization. When I wrote a kind of speculative piece just for myself a few years ago that was um, making a lot of quite silly claims. I was saying, you know, I, I'm, I can envisage a world in which an influencer will float themselves on the stock market. I can envisage a world in which you'd be able to take out a mortgage against your social media stats. You would be able to invest in influencer futures. You know, maybe the next credit crisis is going to be a result of uh, a kind of influencer, an implosion of the influencer industry. And actually a lot of those quite silly and facetious speculations back in, it would have been probably 2017, 2018, have increasingly become true. And especially in an accelerated format in the last six to 12 months with the explosion of, of kind of crypto-based technology and, and um, the reach of that to a much greater audience. Well, a grand unified theory of influence. What, what better place to leave things but there? Olivia, thank you so much. That was Olivia Yallop, everyone. Her new book, uh, Break the Internet, which is brilliant, is out now. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly. I've been Carmela. Thanks so much for listening.